All right, hello everyone. Welcome to our next installation of our antimicrobial stewardship lecture series. Uh, just a reminder, this is available for CE credits for all provider types, nursing and pharmacists. So if you do want your hour of CE, please either sign in in person in the sign in sheet up top, or if you're online, please input your name and your profession in the chat box and we'll show the CE code at the end. Okay, so today's topic is on pneumonia. We're gonna talk about all types of pneumonia, CAP, HAP, VAP, aspiration pneumonia, but we're gonna spend the majority of the time on community acquired pneumonia because I think that's where we can participate in stewardship more frequently. Our objectives for today, we're going to compare the guidelines. The community acquired pneumonia guidelines were published in 2019. The HAP-VAP guidelines in 2016. So we're gonna talk about some differences in guideline recommendations in recent literature. We're also going to evaluate appropriate empiric step-down therapy and understand the nuances between those differences in guideline and literature recommendations. Again, we're gonna talk about CAP for the majority of this. There's been a lot of recent updates in the literature in community-acquired pneumonia in the past 10 to 15 years. But first, who cares, right? Who cares about antibiotics for community-acquired pneumonia? And I like to bring this up because pre-antibiotics for CAP, there was an absolute mortality of 38%. People were dying of this thing that we see all of the time now. And after antibiotics were introduced, that absolute reduction in death was 26%, dropped to 12%, all right? Conversely, talking about another life-threatening disease state, not that to dog on cardiology, it's cool and all, but infectious diseases is way cooler, personally. ISIS-2, which was published in the 80s, looked at MIs after having an MI streptokinase versus placebo versus aspirin. And while aspirin was wonderful, we still utilize it today, their absolute reduction in mortality was nowhere near the absolute reduction in mortality with antibiotics for community-acquired pneumonia. So I just like to add that little tidbit in there. However, nowadays, pneumonia still is the fourth most common cause of hospitalization in the United States, and it costs us over $100 billion annually. But really what I wanna focus on here is that it's a clinical diagnosis that often is treated empirically with no culture data. We know that more than 50% of community-acquired pneumonia has no diagnosed, no diagnosed etiologic um, cause. So that's, you know, we're not figuring out what organism it is. We're kind of just going in blind, treating them with the recommended therapy for whatever recommended duration. While you're going in blind, it is really important to know the common etiology of community-acquired pneumonia and the risk factors that these people have. So I really like to think of it as the big three causers of community-acquired pneumonia. You've got your typical organisms like strep pneumo and haemophilus influenzae are two of our main ones. You've got atypical organisms like mycoplasma, chlamydia, and legionella, and then you have viruses. Viruses, far and away, as you can see from this graph here, when we do detect an organism, they cause the majority of our community-acquired pneumonias. You've got a little smattering of viral and bacterial co-infections. You see some bacterial infections there, but I do wanna point out that of the bacterial infections, actual diagnosed atypical pneumonia occurs in about 3% of patients. So of the big three, probably the lowest on our list of truly causing community-acquired pneumonia. Again, with our etiology of CAP and our typical organisms, historically it's been strep pneumo and haemophilus influenzae. And as we can see here in the United States, we've seen this downtrend of strep pneumo and an uptrend of haemophilus. And this is really due to vaccinations, right? We have a pneumococcal vaccine. This is United States data. This is not necessarily as prevalent in other parts of the world, but because we have such an emphasis and enforcement of vaccines in our country, we're starting to see this decline of strep pneumo, which is allowing for some of these other organisms to take precedence in our etiologies. If we are able to get a respiratory panel, and we'll talk about what we have available here at UofL Health for respiratory panels, we note that 30 to 40% of these community-acquired pneumonias are identified as being viral. Of those 30 to 40%, about a quarter of those have a bacterial co-infection. I think this is important that, to know that it depends on the virus you're talking about. We're not gonna talk about all of them, but very broadly in the era of COVID versus flu, COVID has a low likelihood of having a bacterial co-infection and flu has a higher likelihood relatively of having a bacterial infection. So important to know what season you're in and what virus is most prevalent. And again, still we see with these respiratory viral panels, with the cultures that get us uh, an organism causing community-acquired pneumonia, still in over 50% of these patients, we're not having, we're not able to identify a cause. 
Again, when you're going in blind, important to talk about risk factors. And something that has been more recently retired is this thought of healthcare-associated pneumonia. So previously, we kind of thought of these patients in these larger groups, right? You had some sort of healthcare exposure, maybe you're at risk for resistant organisms versus you have no healthcare exposure, you're more at risk for community organisms. Uh, but this study that was published really went and looked at nursing home patients and identified patients with community acquired pneumonia and what those organisms looked like. And you can see still very predominantly it was Streptococcus pneumoniae. Uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa happened in like 3% of those patients, so not necessarily at risk for pseudomonas there. They did see some increased risk in Staphylococcus aureus, and we'll talk about Staphylococcus aureus pneumonia. We have wonderful diagnostics, rapid diagnostics, to help us determine if Staphylococcus aureus is at play here. So just keep in mind that, you know, maybe these patients, you're kind of keeping an eye out on their other risks for Staphylococcus aureus, but as far as like broad scale healthcare associated pneumonia goes, it's a no-go anymore. You're not necessarily at risk for those multidrug resistant organisms. Our diagnostic tests that we have at UofL, again, for these community-acquired pneumonias, you're kind of going in blind, right? Like you may or may not figure out what organism is truly causing this, which can then make empiric treatment and wanting to be a steward a little difficult in these patients. But luckily, we've kind of, we've, we've got a few different things that you can order here. Sputum and blood cultures, of course, you can order. Does every patient need a blood culture? Probably not. But if they're coughing up some stuff and you're able to get a culture, but that's dollars. It's run 24-7. You get an average turnaround time. Relatively cheap in the grand scheme of things. You then have your streptococcus pneumonia and legionella urine antigen. So these are urine samples, also relatively cheap. Um, dollars, but more dollars than cultures here. Ran 24-7. These are not necessarily as specific, but could be useful in ruling in or ruling out disease of those organisms. Moving to our viral panel, so our respiratory viral panel, this is different than the RSV COVID flu one you see that everyone gets on admission, right? They test for RSV, they test for COVID, they test for flu. This has over 20 organisms on it. You type in respiratory viral panel, it includes a, very, a variety of viruses, say that three times, uh, and a few are atypical organisms. So it includes mycoplasma and chlamydia. It does not include Legionella, so you do have to add a Legionella urine antigen to this, but it's wonderful to help roll in or roll out a viral disease. And then finally, our atypical panel. We run this at our ID research lab. Um, it's a throat swab, and it has your atypical age or organisms on there. I like to think of this uh, when I think my patient really may be presenting with an atypical pneumonia. As far as Costco, it's the most expensive. It's about $400. It's a send out to our ID research lab, so only sent out Monday through Friday. You usually get results the same day, but the benefit with this is that it, has, it can identify multiple serotypes of Legionella. The urine antigen will only tell you one type of Legionella. The atypical panel can tell you a variety of types of Legionella. So Legionella pneumonia, we're not specifically talking about here, but it does have some sort of a specific presentation and you're kind of thinking about like times of the year and what risk factors they have. Um, so if you're thinking your patient may be presenting with a Legionella pneumonia, this might be the way to go. Despite having these tools available to us, we find that still, again, more than 50% of the time, this is a clinical diagnosis with no etiologic agent. This brings us to our first patient case talking about etiology and organisms associated with pneumonia. So it's November and my favorite thing about doing ID is that we get to practice all the things we kind of liked in school but didn't love enough to do for a full-time career. So things like geography, environmental science, and knowing the seasons, being a weatherman, uh, is something we get to do. So it's November, you're in the middle of flu season. A 63-year-old female presents to the emergency room, she's got a cough fever fatigue. Other than hypertension, she really has no other past medical history. What organisms are you suspecting for her community-acquired pneumonia? You can just shout them out. Influenza. Influenza. I kind of gave it away with the smack dab in flu season, but yeah, don't forget about the flu when your patient has community-acquired pneumonia. What else? This is a select all that apply. Strep pneumo. Okay. Any others? Homophilus. Yeah. There you go. You got two of your typical organisms that are most commonly causers and then one of your viruses. As far as pseudomonas goes, she has no risk factors that would tell us she would be predisposed to pseudomonas causing pneumonia. All right, now that we've talked about kind of, we know we're not gonna find out what all of these community acquired pneumonias are caused by, we're gonna talk about our empiric antimicrobials and some thought provoking studies in context that you can take with you hopefully uh, and start maybe processing these patients a little differently in your mind.
So first, I do want to highlight the 2019 CAP guidelines. I think they really tried here in 2019 to make these make sense, but inadvertently made them kind of convoluted. And so they're no longer as easy as the old guidelines were, which is kind of placing these patients in buckets. They're asking you to evaluate specific risk factors and doing things with those specific risk factors. So here they have, okay, your standard regimen. Your patient has no comorbidities. You just start your beta-lactam, macrolide, or respiratory fluoroquinolone, right? Same-o, same-o. You could probably recite that in your sleep. It probably haunts you in your dreams. Prior respiratory of isolation of MRSA and pseudomonas, this is obvious, right? You've, you've got some sort of previous respiratory culture. We should probably cover them again. And then the more clinically nuanced situations come in these last two tables um, where you're looking at recent hospitalization and parenteral antibiotic use in areas locally validated for those organisms. That and parenteral antibiotic use comes in very important because if you just start looking at patients with recent hospitalizations, you're gonna start giving them these designations of at risk for multidrug resistant organisms that's not necessarily founded by clinical trials. So I went down this wormhole whenever I was a resident of well, I work in a hospital, I basically live here, am I at risk for these multidrug resistant organisms? And this is where they help you try to draw that line of who is truly at risk for MDR organisms. With that, they really like to highlight some of our rapid diagnostics here, and I appreciate their nod to the MRSA nasal PCR here. We're not gonna go into detail about it, but I'd be more than happy to talk to anyone about the MRSA nasal PCR. Uh, but they say if you do have risk factors for MRSA, uh, then you can get an ARES if you have non-severe pneumonia, start your standard regimen, and then try to evaluate if you think that patient truly has a staph aureus pneumonia. You've kind of got some time, you've got some things that can help you do that. You'll see on this bottom row here, the severe pneumonia, that's like, we don't, we're not, we don't really have time to mess around, right? These patients, they're probably gonna get intubated, they're gonna move to the ICU at that point if they have those risk factors. Let's get them the coverage they need, then we can use our rapid diagnostics to de-escalate a day or so later. If you look down here, this is probably one of my favorite parts of this. If you look down at the bottom of this table, um, you're gonna see I'm marking out some stuff that we just do not use. They make some recommendations here. This is to be all encompassing of all of the hospital systems that are gonna utilize their guideline. But I wanna point out the ones that we do use and the ones that we don't use. So you'll see I marked out cefotaxime, ceftaroline, and clarithromycin. Cefotaxime is non-formulary here. Ceftaroline, we think of an MRSA agent that we utilize in persistent bacteremias, however, you know, it was thought of this great drug, broad-spectrum gram-positive, broad-spectrum gram-negative. It did get studied in community-acquired pneumonia, so it made it onto the guidelines. We do not use ceftaroline for community-acquired pneumonia here. Um, it is a restricted antimicrobial, specifically saved for use for those times that we really need it. We started using ceftaroline up front. We'd kind of be in a world of hurt whenever we truly needed it. And then clarithromycin of the macrolides that we frequently use, clarithromycin and azithromycin. Uh, clarithromycin is far less tolerable. Uh, and it's more expensive, and so we don't typically utilize it. Azithromycin, way more tolerable, easy dosing, so we utilize that one. And then for the HAPVAP guidelines, I marked out ceftazidime. It's non-form here. Um, we try to use it for multidrug-resistant pseudomonas. Sometimes we get lucky, and it's still able to cover it. Imipenem is not on formulary. There's really no benefit of imipenem over meripenem, so we have meripenem on our formulary here. Um, and then astreanam. So meripenem and astreanam, we do have them here, but similarly to ceftaroline, why would you use meropenem for HAPVAP if you can utilize like cefepime or piptazo? We're really wanting to evaluate our risk factors there for MDR organisms. And then astreanam, uh, I believe we specifically talked about astreanam in a previous lecture. It is one of our protected antimicrobials here with the criteria for use. This is included very broadly for patients uh, with beta-lactam allergies. However, some more data has come out in which you can really kind of get down to the minute detail of those beta-lactam allergies. And typically speaking, you can utilize one of our agents. Um, Astreanam does not have its greatest susceptibilities empirically for the organisms we're trying to cover. If you're thinking pseudomonas with hospital-acquired pneumonia, it's got like a 60 to 70% empiric susceptibility in the community to pseudomonas. So if you're talking then ICU and hospitalized patients, that only decreases. So it's not really a great option for us here. Back to Staphylococcus aureus pneumonia and talking about locally validated risk factors. What they mean by locally validated risk factors is does your community have a high prevalence of MRSA among Staph aureus isolates? The short answer for us here in Louisville is yes, more than 50% of our Staph aureus isolates are MRSA. The most important question to ask, does my patient have Staph aureus pneumonia? MRSA, MSSA, do they have Staph aureus pneumonia, right? If they don't present with the Staph aureus pneumonia, then there's really no reason to 
care if it's MRSA or if it's MSSA. This study here in 2016 looked at patients with community-acquired pneumonia and the incidence of Staph aureus pneumonia there, and they saw that less than 2% of those 2,200 patients actually had a Staph aureus pneumonia. The highest incidence is typically seen with flu season. You'll sometimes see some graphics where it kind of charts with flu season. Uh, and then the biggest risk factor, again, is this previous isolation of MRSA, which is what led the guidelines to make the recommendation. You know, if you did have a previous isolation of MRSA, then we probably would want to cover our patient, of course, for MRSA and their community-acquired pneumonia. Our empiric antimicrobial regimen, again, I'm sure you all know this by heart, is some sort of beta-lactam, ceftriaxone, or amstelbactam tend to be our go-tos, plus some sort of atypical therapy being azithromycin or doxycycline. We're going to talk about the differences between azithro and doxy, um, but I think the biggest part here is they've kind of moved away, and I love that they like gave this stamp of approval. Fluoroquinolone should really be reserved in patients who cannot take a beta-lactam. Again, you can get down to the bottom of a beta-lactam allergy, and you can typically give these patients ceftriaxone or some sort of other cephalosporin, uh, but fluoroquinolones with their host of ADEs and honestly their declining susceptibility, this is how we ruined fluoroquinolones is when they came out, we used them for everything. It was a good once daily levofloxacin, you don't have to worry about it, it covers everything you want. Uh, but we've, saw, we've seen susceptibilities decline and our ADEs are only increasing. Just recently they attributed it with an increase in aortic aneurysm. So that's an, an absolute contraindication, right? Like who knew it was causing aortic aneurysms? Uh, and so they really, really want to focus you to the beta-lactam part of this and only use fluoroquinolones if you absolutely have to. Now to our atypical therapy. And we talked about how atypical pneumonia happens in roughly 3% of patients seen in that study, right? So then comes the question, do I need to cover my patient for atypicals in every single CAP patient that I have? This was a wonderful study that came out and they randomized beta-lactam monotherapy versus beta-lactam macrolide combination therapy. So we're talking like amoxicillin, amoxiclav, ceftriaxone alone, or plus, or minor, or plus doxycycline or azithromycin. They, this was a randomized controlled trial in almost 600 patients. They were really looking at clinical stability and had a few secondary endpoints that, of course, every hospital system cares about. And if your patient was diagnosed with Legionella, they specifically went out and tested for Legionella so that they weren't missing these patients. You got treatment for that. And what they noticed was that there was this trend towards significance in clinical stability at day seven that favored the combination therapy arm. However, when they went and did a post hoc analysis, this was driven by patients who were diagnosed with other atypical infections. So not necessarily the Legionella, maybe the Chlamydia, maybe the Mycoplasma. And when they removed all of those, that difference disappeared. And so you see an increase um, in clinical and not clinically stable in our combination therapy, and you see a decrease in not clinically stable in our, or in our monotherapy. So there was no statistically significant difference in these patients. This second study um, that was published was, uh, this is called the CAPSTART study. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of it. I just remember that being like on one of my board certification tests and it's haunted me to this day. Uh, but they looked at beta-lactam therapy. They essentially had three different cohorts you can be in, three different strategies they called it. So you had a beta-lactam by itself, beta-lactam plus a macrolide or a respiratory fluoroquinolone, which we know covers atypicals. They looked at these three different groups because they wanted to say, okay, What's the difference? Should we be utilizing one of these strategies for our patients? Their primary outcome was 90-day all-cause mortality. They also looked, of course, at length of hospitalization, time to oral transition, and occurrence of complications during the hospital stay. What they found here was that there was really no difference between the groups. So it depends on how you like to interpret literature. One person might say, well, if there's no difference, then cool, I can choose whatever I want, right? And one might say, well, if there's truly no difference, why wouldn't I use the one that's best for my patient from a stewardship standpoint, right? We know fluoroquinolones have a slew of adverse effects. We know macrolides have a slew of adverse effects. And we like to sometimes forget that macrolides have a very low level. Yes, they cover atypicals. They also cover some gram positives and gram negatives. They can wreak just enough havoc on your gut microbiome to increase your risk of C. diff. And so if you have the choice of using less or using more, then my stewardship mind would say, well, why wouldn't I use less? Why wouldn't I use therapy that's effective that can cause the least damage? And that's what really a lot of people took away from this study. 
And then what about doxycycline? So choosing between azithromycin and doxycycline. I know at Jewish Hospital this is a conversation we have a lot due to our cardiac patients. Um, and so what they did was they looked at macrolides um, or fluoroquinolones compared to doxycycline in this study, and they, they really found no difference. As kind of expected, right, with doxycycline covers atypicals, we really wouldn't expect too much of a difference. So doxycycline, if you ask really any ID provider, whatever level of profession they're in, what their favorite antibiotic is, like 99% of them are going to say doxycycline. It's the only thing you're really like worried about is don't give it to pregnant people and like maybe not kids. Uh, and so it's a jack of all trades and really doesn't harm much. And so if I can use one of these drugs that I know is going to cause the least harm, then maybe I'm going to start thinking about using that drug more often. It also may be productive of C. diff. And so this is something I say maybe. It's kind of been um, seen in multiple different like retrospectives, but it's not necessarily been parsed out in like a large randomized control trial evaluating C. diff risk. But there have been a few studies. So this first study looked at ceftriaxin alone, which I'm going to probably stain on a few soapboxes here. Ceftriaxin is probably one of my favorite soapboxes um, next to ceftonir, which I will stand on, don't worry. Ceftriaxin is the most broad of our narrow spectrum agents. We like to think it's super easy. It doesn't cover pseudomonas. Go me. I'm a steward. I'm going to get a badge of approval. Um, however, ceftriaxin still, again, like azithromycin, but to more of an extent, covers that garden variety of gram positives and gram negatives that obliterate your gut microbiome and allow C. diff to really ramp up and start causing infection. When we evaluated antibiotics associated with C. diff at Jewish Hospital, ceftriaxin was our third most common cause, only behind meropenem and then piptazone, cefepime kind of grouped together. So we're definitely paying attention to ceftriaxone. You can see the C. diff incidence rate here was 8.11 per 10,000 patient days. But when you added doxycycline, that dropped to 1.67. So it starts this theory of like, what's going on here? Why is this looking a little bit better than cetriaxone alone? Typically, you think adding two drugs together caused more damage, but not really here. And then it's pretty similar when you're comparing ceftriaxone to a macrolide. Uh, and so you can see when you have ceftriaxone and doxycycline versus ceftriaxone and azithromycin, our risk of C. diff is lower in that ceftriaxone doxycycline group. All the more reason to consider doxycycline in your patients with community-acquired pneumonia. Cost versus benefit, very, very important to consider. And this is kind of just harping on azithromycin here. Not to say azithromycin is a bad drug. It's not. It's wonderful for many reasons. But when you get the right patient in front of you, instead of just automatically going through your power plan, ceftrax and azithro, ceftrax and azithro, maybe take a second to think, could my patient benefit from doxycycline? And some of the reasons we wouldn't use azithromycin is really in our cardiology patients, our cardiac patients. Azithromycin has an increased risk of sudden cardiac death. Uh, and so that, like, I remember learning that in pharmacy school, like, that z pack that I've gotten probably, like, once a year since I was a child could have murdered me. Uh, and so you got to remember that in our cardiac patients, not only does it have this increased risk of cardiac death, it's QTC prolonging, interacts with a lot of those medications that our cardiac patients are on, like warfarin, statins. Uh, and, you know, when you're really thinking about it, in theory, a three-day duration shouldn't cause much harm, right? But... Here's where like the dosing caveat of this comes in. Raise your hand on if you're on like team Z-Pack, 500 then 250 for four days. Raise your hand if you're on team 500 for three days. All right, we'd love to see it. Yeah, it doesn't matter, right? 1500 milligrams, either way you wanna swing it. The three days is easier inpatient. Uh, what are you gonna do? Like give them 250 for two days and send them out with half a Z-Pack? No. So if you can give them 500 milligrams for three days, it's just so much easier on your patient if you are just covering them empirically for atypicals if you've deemed that they need that atypical coverage. All right. And then second dosing thing that I like to harp on a little bit is ceftriaxone. Um, how many of you are ceftriaxone one gram for community-acquired pneumonia? Anybody? Anybody? What about two grams for everything? Depends. Depends. All right. Hope I can change your depends mind. So my argument with this is always, what is ceftriaxone two grams gonna harm? Versus what is ceftriaxone one gram gonna harm? And if you're looking at the two gram dose versus the one gram dose, there's really no dose dependent adverse effect relationship there. So increasing to one gram doesn't necessarily increase your risk of C. diff or any of the other adverse effects of ceftriaxone, though we know ceftriaxone to be a relatively benign drug. One gram, though, has some conflicting data, I will say. It's one of those you can find a study to prove you wrong. You can find a study to prove you right if you want. 
but Ackerman and colleagues showed two grams superiority, and I think the thing about Ackerman and colleagues here is they had some patients with higher body weight and low albumin. Why is albumin important? Albumin is like the train that ceftriaxone rides around and like jumps off every now and then so that you can dose it every 24 hours. If you have low albumin, you don't have enough train cars, and so the drug is just getting excreted. There's all this free drug getting excreted. And in our obese patients as well, sometimes we, you can get kind of like tinfoil hatty, I like to say, about dosing and obesity and dosing and low albumin. You get some pharmacy nerds together, we start thinking like, oh, should we be using 2Q12 like more often than we're doing 2Q24 for our patients with obesity? All that aside, two grams may be better for some patients. Clinical judgment is needed. I don't really honestly care one way or the other. I typically recommend that patients start, or people start with two grams. If you want to then go down to one gram, okay, we can go down to one gram. But if you start to one gram, they go to the ICU, they're overweight and they have no albumin because they're a liver patient or something, you could potentially harm them by dosing them with one gram. That's my unsolicited advice that none of you asked for. All right, back to our patient case. You determine why G likely has bacterial community acquired pneumonia. So flu's out the window, they've got bacteria. No allergies, what is your empiric regimen? Anybody brave enough to make a guess? Does anyone feel like two of these answers might be right? Yeah, okay, good, you fell into my trap. So this to say, right, like neither one of these are really wrong. You can technically do ceftrax in one gram. I don't think either of these trains of thought are wrong. Um, if you're really you know, concerned about their cardiac issues, which she doesn't have, you could do doxy. If you just decide to jump on the doxy train after this, you could do doxy. If you don't really care and you think azithromycin is safe in her, either one of these are going to be fine. She does not need levofloxacin. She has no risk factors for pseudomonas. That's honestly just kind of like a lazy, let's just do levofloxacin and not have to think about her for the next few days. And then vanc and piptazo, again, she has no risk factors. There's no real reason to do that. I want to point out that this is a wonderful pathway to walk you through the CAP guidelines. It looks scary. It came out in 2019 and then COVID happened and so everyone was like, yeah, we'll think about you later. Um, but they recently like kind of recirculated it in the last month or so. So this is available if you want a nice kind of walkthrough of the community acquired pneumonia guidelines. All right, we've talked about etiology. We've talked about empiric antimicrobials. The next important piece of antimicrobial stewardship is, all right, we figured out the drug. How long are we going to treat? And it seems pretty simple, right? Like, raise your hand if you're in the five-day group. Five-day for cap. What about a seven-day group? Anybody in seven-day group? Anybody greater than seven days? All right, cool. Uh, so it seems simple, right? But is it? You'll find there's a lot more variability than you think. Historically, the guidelines have said seven to 14 days. This is an excerpt from one of the first like ATS guidelines where they overtly say, we don't know much about what to do with duration, so this is what we're saying to do, this is what we've always done. Much like a lot of things in infectious diseases, when antibiotics came around, they were saving lives. We, they were kind of crappy antibiotics, to be quite frank with you. We were just doing them until the patient didn't die, and then that kind of made its way through, right? So how do we end up on seven days? I like to blame this on Constantine the Great because back in 321 AD, he said seven days is a week. Let's go, let's do it. That's how we're moving forward in life. So when we started treating these patients and they're not dying, we're like, let's just round it out to seven days. Let's just round it out to 14 days. And you'll see that this dogma of seven days has kind of circulated in almost every recommendation for antibiotics. The only other time it really deviates is when we're talking about five versus 10 days, which is the fingers on your hand, right? Like, all right, it's perfect. Um, there is one quote from this guy who we'll talk about in the slide, dedicated his life to basically challenging the dogmas of all of these durations. And he said, wouldn't it have been better if we evolved as three toe sloths? We might have better stewardship at that point. So it's one of my favorite fun facts. And again, this is taken from his website. His name is Brad Spellberg. I would highly recommend you look him up if you ever just want like a quick resource of where to collect things. He is the CMO of LA County, so he's like relatively reputable. He's not just some little grungy man like in his basement being mean to everybody. Uh, he has dedicated his entire career, he speaks around the world, to basically dismantling these dogmas that have been around for decades and decades of treatment. What he does is he collects on shorter is better and oral versus IV. So this is taken from his shorter is better stuff. 
And he collects all the randomized controlled trials to prove that shorter is better. And his big thing is there's never been anything telling us that longer is better. There's a few instances that yes, they have, and that is commonly documented. Uh, but for the most part, anytime we're evaluating duration, shorter has typically proven to be just as equivalent as longer and sometimes better. So you can see that there were 14 randomized controlled trials comparing short duration of therapy anywhere from three to five days to long durations of therapy. And all of them come to the conclusion that it is just as efficacious to use shorter therapy. However, our current guidelines still recommend a minimum of five days of therapy. So keep that in your mind. What are we doing with this in the modern era? Uh, this is really interesting to me. There are like two studies in here that kind of depress me. This is one and the other one will come later when we talk about orals. But they took this from an insurance group and they wanted to see what are, what are we doing? How long are we treating these patients? The yellow is less than seven days. The red is greater than seven days. The lighter shade is outpatient treatment. The darker shade is inpatient treatment. What you can see here is that the majority of these patients are treated for more than seven days. And the majority of that is done outpatient. So in essentially what is happening here and what is theorized is happening is your patient comes in, they get three or four days of IV antibiotics. You go to discharge them home. There's a nice little button that says seven days. You click that button. You send them out with seven more days of treatment. Uh, we see this happen a lot in our transitions of care. So this is just a point to state, you know, take into consideration your patient's total length of antibiotic therapy. We are still treating people for very long durations of time despite a lot of evidence saying we don't necessarily need to do that. One of the studies evaluating this shorter duration versus longer duration is a study by Arunga and colleagues. Um, and again, randomized control trial. They wanted to see how long we should be treating people. And they compared five days compared to physician discretion, which averaged at about 10 days. Uh, they had a variety of comorbidities, uh, but you had to be clinically stable at day five. Really what they saw here was that there was no real difference with one exception, right? So you've got your clinical success at day 10 is looking great. Um, in your PSI, so your pneumonia severity index score classes, there wasn't a whole lot of difference. But they did see that a readmission rate by day 30 was significantly higher in our longer durations of therapy groups. They didn't dive into why this might be. They didn't tell us it was because of adverse effects. They theorized it was because everyone got a phone number and the people that discharged earlier or run shorter courses of therapy maybe just used that more often um, to prevent admission. Yeah, I had the same, I had the same look, Dr. Hannon. I wasn't entirely pleased with their uh, discussion of that. But important to note that here in this study, they found less 30-day readmissions. And then in this second study, they looked at three versus eight days of therapy and non-severe pneumonia. Again, you had to have stabilized at day three to have stopped therapy, and you had to have no reason to need continued therapy. What they found overall was that there was no difference, right? So if you look at their intention to treat analysis, you look down this forest plot, there's no difference of outcomes in this. However, if you look at the intention to treat in all patients, it was just shy of being better than the longer duration of therapy. So if you're taking these two studies into context, no difference, right? But a trend to slightly better outcomes in some of our secondary stuff. So then you start to wonder to yourself, well, why am I treating my patient longer if there's no need and I'm potentially increasing their risk for other types of outcomes that they could have. And then this is the second study that kind of depresses me. So this came out in 2023 and I was like shouting it to everyone that day. I was like, oh, this study came out. No one changes to oral. So what they did here was they looked at of patients who were receiving IV antibiotics for community acquired pneumonia in over 600 hospitals, a ton of patients. They evaluated early switch. So at day three, who was changing to oral and if there was any differences in outcomes. What they found in over 375,000 patients was that 6% were switched to oral by day three. Of this 6%, all of these people were on IV fluoroquinolones. They attributed that, they didn't really go into it, but if you think about it logically, there's an IV to PO policy at almost every institution of which fluoroquinolones are on. Probably by day three, these people met criteria for this IV to PO and some per policy person switched it to PO and that's what happened. This did not happen with any of the beta-lactams. You might be thinking to yourself, well, Audrey, what if they were severe and they needed IV for much longer days of therapy? Less than 15% of their very low risk patients were switched to oral antibiotics early. Again, all of this to say, just because your patient is in the hospital does not mean that they need IV antibiotics. And to their point of, did it matter? It did matter. So this is the first time this entire time you've heard me say something actually was different. 
and this is in their outcome. so looking at the patients who switched earlier, they had a lower rate of fourteen day in hospital fatality, lower rate of icu admissions, lower rate of vasopressor initiation, lower rates of c. diff they had lower total duration of iv antibiotics, of course you're switching early, that one's easy total duration of antibiotics was much shorter, length of stay was shorter, and cost was shorter. so this actually made a huge impact on patient not necessarily their you know, outcomes, they did evaluate outcomes, um, but really looking at the cost of therapy as well. Like again, if it doesn't really matter if you're transitioning these people from IV to oral, why would you not save them and your hospital system some money? If your patient can switch, switch them. If they can take oral therapy, if their antibiotic is the only oral thing they're taking and they have defervesce from an infection standpoint, let's just figure out, let's figure out as a group what we can switch them to. We have IV to PO policies. We do have some IV to PO step downs when we're talking like Amstelbactam to Amoxclav. Uh, but let's, let's work together to try to get these people on oral therapy so that they could potentially be discharged sooner. All right. I want to bring up here this appropriate oral antibiotics thing. So you'll see here we've got amoxicillin, amoxclav, cefpidoxime, cefuroxime. This is per the 2019 guidelines. This is what they list. Those two are non-formulary, but you can get them outpatient, wonderful drugs outpatient, and then levofloxacin, which we're reserving. I know I just skipped ahead, but does anyone want to take a wild guess of what is not on this? Ceftonir. Yes. Welcome to my second soapbox. So, septonir, clinical disclaimer, it has been studied for community-acquired pneumonia, has not underperformed clinically. However, again, I'm putting on my, like, pharmacist tinfoil hat. If you ask any ID provider what their favorite drug is, it's doxy, least favorite is probably septonir. Uh, and so, the reason for this is if you get down to the nitty-gritty pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic stuff that we like to nerd out on, it's only 16 to 25% bioavailable. You're comparing that to amoxicillin, amoxiclab, 90 to 100%. Fluoroquinolones, 90 to 100%. This has poor bioavailability. And of that bioavailability, 60 to 70% of that protein bound. So you get a quarter of the drug that's actually circulating your body, and then your albumin comes up and sucks up about 60 to 70% of that. So it's not active drug actually treating the infection. And then 12 to 18% of that is excreted unchanged in the drug as inactive drug. So you're wondering to yourself, well, what part of this septonier dose is actually active? I'll tell you, not a lot. Uh, and so we like to think of it as, you know, it's a third generation. It's a great step down to ceftriaxin, right? We go ceftriaxin, septonier, same coverage. Uh, but they actually evaluated this in 2009 specifically for community-acquired pneumonia. They looked at the likelihood of target attainment, which means the likelihood that you're going to get high enough concentrations at the site of infection to actually treat that infection for strep pneumo and haemophilus influenza. They did it for a variety of types of antimicrobials, but the important ones are amoxicillin and amoxiclav. What they found was the probability of target attainment for septonir for those two organisms was about half that of amoxicillin and amoxiclav. So sure, right, it might be a great third generation antimicrobial that has this wonderful spectrum of activity, but it ain't treating what you think it's treating. So I think a good take-home point here is, yes, septonir is good. Sometimes I use it as like a placebo effect. Like if someone has a UTI, it's not really a UTI, and it makes everyone feel better that they get septonir for like a day or two, whatever. Uh, but unnecessary coverage, right? So like while you're not obtaining your target, while you don't have high enough concentrations to actively treat the infection, you still have, again, this like low-level coverage that is killing some level of organisms, potentially increasing your risk for C. diff. And then you're likely not treating what you want to treat. And on top of that, it doesn't really add anything on top of amoxicillin and amoxiclav for community-acquired pneumonia. You're not really getting any added spectrum. So why not use one of those agents? Thanks for coming to my stuff in your TED Talk. These are the appropriate oral pneumonia regimens. Um, this is kind of stratified in comorbidities is gray, no comorbidities is red, so you can see your amoxicillin doxy, and then you have some of your other more broad spectrum agents that get some of our like strep pneumos and HVO that might have a little bit of resistance to them. And a brief touch of outpatient treatment, I'm not going to go into this too much because outpatient stewardship is the bane of every stewardship pharmacist experience, uh, but all that to say, you know, UofL Health has 67% susceptibility for macrolide to strep pneumo. These are evaluating monotherapy. So this is not saying like amoxicillin plus doxy or macrolide. It's saying amoxicillin or doxy 
or macrolide, which is why you might have gotten a ZPAC as a kid when you had possibly a pneumonia. Strep pneumo resistance rates weren't that high yet, uh, but we just shouldn't be using macrolides alone in our specific community. You might go somewhere else that it's wonderful, we have great strep pneumo stuff, but here in Louisville, we don't. All right, back to our patient case. She's ready to go home. She received a dose of ceftriaxone and azithromycin. What are you going to send her with? Anyone? C or D. C or D. Look, you guys are like kind of getting the hang of my trick questions, right? Uh, we like to think we're reasonable. Either of these could potentially work. Uh, again, if you're feeling really cavalier and like a super steward that day and you want like a go you text for me, then amoxicillin, one gram is the way to go. If you're feeling like, I don't really care what Audrey says today, I'm just trying to get this patient out, this will do. Um, this will do. This will be wonderful for them. It's a recommended therapy. Great job. You hit the nail on the head. I'm not even going to go over the levofloxacin and septonere. I think we kind of talked that to death. Um, and then my final favorite study to bring up when talking about community-acquired pneumonia is this question. Does anyone have an answer to this question? No is the right answer, right? No. Daptomycin is inactivated by lung surfactant. We don't treat lung infections with it. Fun fact, they didn't know that when they first found daptomycin when they were studying it for community-acquired pneumonia. Uh, and so they found that they were getting lung tissue, like concentrations. They were taking samples of lung tissue. There was drug level there. They just didn't know it wasn't active. And so they studied daptomycin for community-acquired pneumonia. And the way that this basically worked was before you got set, like separated into the daptomycin arm, or the appropriate therapy arm, you can get a dose of appropriate empiric therapy. So what they found was that the majority of these patients, when they went into the daptomycin arm, they got a single dose of therapy, that's what you were allotted, and then the other patients got a dose of therapy, then moved on to ceftriax and amsulbactam, whatever they were comparing it to. There wasn't, there was a significant difference, right? We don't use daptomycin, we know this, but there wasn't much of a difference. And so not to say you should take this and say, oh, I'll give my patients daptomycin for pneumonia or I'll give my patients one dose of ceftriaxone. But I hope that this study makes you feel a little bit better that sometimes we do kind of overcall and overtreat a little bit a bacterial pneumonia. And if you really don't feel compelled that your patient needs antibiotics, you're probably thinking in the right frame of thought. Let's just get some more tests to make us feel a little bit more confident about that. All right. That's community-acquired pneumonia. I've got about 10 minutes left, and we're going to talk about HAP, FAP, and aspiration pneumonia. My main goal with this is to hit on some points that were really big in these guidelines in 2016. Crazy to say, almost 10 years ago, at least eight years, um, and where we are almost a decade later. So we're going to talk about double coverage of pseudomonas, inhaled antimicrobials, durations of therapy, and aspiration pneumonia. There's like a slide for each of these, so it's not too much. Double coverage of pseudomonas. Has anyone seen this since you've been here for pneumonias? Have you seen it frequently? No. Okay. We don't really do this anymore, right? We've luckily kind of moved away from it. When they initially made this recommendation, they overtly say, weak recommendation, low quality of evidence. If you're reading guidelines, take a look at that little grade they give them. You would be surprised the amount of them, specifically in the ID world. I don't read many cardiology guidelines but the amount of ID recommendations that are weak, low quality of evidence. They basically come out and say, um, you know, we're not really sure. This was kind of in the era where we didn't have ceftazidime, avibactam, we didn't have ceftolazine, tazobactam, we didn't have these very broad spectrum agents. This was like polymyxin, like colistin, what do we want to use here, right? We didn't have a lot to do. Um, and so I think when you're considering double covering someone for pseudomonas, you kind of have to have this like train of thought that goes through your mind. The first train of thought, do they actually have VAP? Do they actually have HAP? Okay, they have that. Is it gram negative? Okay, it's a gram negative. Is it multidrug resistant? What's their likelihood of it being multidrug resistant? Maybe it's multidrug resistant. Is that multidrug resistant organism going to be susceptible to the second agent you had? And this is a question that someone who put in a lot of time and effort and was not me had, and they put together this antibiogram from a variety of different hospitals. They've got UChicago, WashU, Wake Forest, and they tried to stratify it in, okay, you have a pseudomonas that's resistant to Piptazo. What's the likelihood it's going to be susceptible to these other agents that you're going to try to add? If you look at ciprofloxacin at Wake Forest, 7% likelihood. 
That's the one I've seen most commonly utilized is a fluoroquinolone in tandem with some sort of beta-lactam. I know every now and then we'll use tobramycin. More recently, gentamicin and amikacin have kind of fallen out as they're like no-goes for pseudomonal therapy anymore. Um, but you got to kind of have that train of thought of what's the likelihood that this is actually going to work and balance that out with the potential toxicities you're causing because we know fluoroquinolones, we know aminoglycosides are going to cause toxicity to our patients. The second thing we're going to talk about inhaled antimicrobials, again, weak recommendation, very low quality of evidence. We don't know, so let's do it. Their thought was that it's not going to really cause any harm despite it not really being proven to cause any good. Europe said, what the heck are you guys doing? So they came out in 2017 with a position statement about the 2016 guidelines and basically said, hey, we're not doing this. There's no evidence for it. What are you guys doing? And so the thought was that it was going to reduce the bacterial burden. It doesn't necessarily, it definitely has not shown any increased, um, pr increased proven morbidity or mortality. So it's kind of moved into this like niche area of structural lung disease. There is some benefit seen in these structural lung disease patients when you're talking about reduced bacterial burden, these patients with lots of exacerbations and hospitalizations. They probably have some benefit there, but as far as like your guy up on the ventilator who had a MI and now they have a hospital-acquired ventilator-associated pneumonia, it's not really going to provide any benefit to them. The third is ultra-short therapy for BAP. This is my like new favorite thing to do in the ICU. We have wonderful stewards in our ICU, and I'm so incredibly proud of our palm group. Um, general, general recommendation for half VAP is seven days right you kind of get stuck when you're in the icu and your patient has a ventilator and they had a fever overnight or the nurse tells you they're suctioning more well what do i do with this now i feel like i have to commit them to seven days of antibiotics despite everything else kind of telling you maybe not their ventilator settings are the same they're stable they haven't changed but i don't want to take a risk here so what this study did was compare patients who had minimal and stable ventilator settings. I like to think of these as the, oh, but they had a fever overnight patients. And they looked at one to three days of therapy versus more than three days of therapy, and they found no difference. So when you're thinking of these patients in the ICU of kind of like a, I don't really know what to do, let's have like a short goal in mind and let's reevaluate. And that's my favorite thing to do with the three days is let's aim for three days. If we're satisfied at three days that either we've treated it or they're no longer presenting as a pneumonia, let's stop it. Let's stop signing ourselves up for these seven-day durations of therapy just because of what happened on one single day or potentially even one single lab value. So this is a great tool to use in your ICUs. And then finally, anaerobes and aspiration. Um, and so the HAPVAP guidelines do not mention it. The 2019 CAP guidelines specifically mention it. They say don't do it. Uh, I cannot think of a more aerobic environment than the lungs as long as there's gas exchange occurring. So they specifically say, unless there's an empyema, fluid-filled sac, where anaerobes can live, there's no recommendation to include anaerobic therapy. And there's actually a very low incidence of anaerobic pneumonia, and there's little benefit of adding anaerobic coverage seen by this study here where there was no difference in outcomes when you added specifically anaerobic coverage for aspiration pneumonia. Um, this was a huge systematic review and meta-analysis in 2023, so probably one of the most recent publications we have about anaerobe coverage and aspiration pneumonia. Um, again, you know, if you're still feeling kind of like, well, but what if they like swallowed their spit or their gut or what happened here? Your standards of care for community-acquired pneumonia and hospital-acquired pneumonia are going to cover your like mouth organisms and your gut organisms. Ceftriaxone does have some level of coverage. You're thinking Ampsolbactam. Piptazo, which we love to use for gut infections, is a standard of care for hospital-acquired pneumonia. And so there's no real reason to add extra anaerobic coverage in those organisms or in those disease states unless you really do have like an empyema or some sort of loculated fluid collection associated with that pneumonia. With that, that's all I have. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Um, some of our conclusions. Comfortability with empiric decision-making is really important in pneumonia. I completely understand. You know, I'm not a diagnostician. I cannot fathom how difficult it is to make that decision with a patient with pneumonia, but learning how to be comfortable in that uncomfortable scenario and having the knowledge that you have of what's very likely to happen versus what's least likely to happen and the potential damage that you can cause by kind of just saying like, oh no, and covering for everything is, is super important in disease states like this. Uh, being a steward is still possible when treating these infections with an unknown etiology. You can still make rational decisions and kind of really think through your patient and it will lead you down a path that will get them the best treatment despite knowing what they have.
And then guidelines are great until they aren't. We know that the lack of guideline update is not necessarily due to the literature, it's due to the lack of getting the right people in the room at the right time to write them and then getting them to agree and publish it. And so it's not to say that you should still be following these guidelines that are almost 10 years old. If your patient doesn't fit that scenario or you're seeing that practice doesn't fit that scenario, ask questions, find literature, find people who are practicing more maybe in this modern way compared to the guideline and see what their thoughts are on it and I'm sure you'll learn a lot. And that's all I have. Are there any questions? We've got a question in the chat, okay. Is the old theory that azithromycin is true? I'm assuming this is referring to inflammatory effects. Yeah, okay, perfect. Um, yes, azithromycin does have some level of anti-inflammatory effects, so does doxycycline. So if that's, you're trying to like figure out which one you wanna use for that, sure. Things you have to think about with COPD exacerbations, and again, I'm not a pulmonologist, I'm merely a steward. Um, when considering COPD exacerbations, you gotta think about the other things that these patients are started on that are also gonna help with inflammation, like steroids, inhaled corticosteroids, some of these other things that are probably gonna make more of a benefit. Now, I know there is some data, again, in this structural lung disease, that some of these antimicrobials and azithromycin does reduce the amount of recurrence and the amount of exacerbations and hospitalizations. Um, but if you're solely using azithromycin for anti-inflammatory, I would maybe start thinking about like, does their ICS maybe need to be adjusted or do they need some other inhalers? Um, are they gonna be started on other oral anti or other oral steroids that are gonna better help that inflammation in that scenario? So not saying that it's not true, just saying it's maybe not the answer for everyone. Yeah, I mean, if you have an etiology that's defined, like an atypical pneumonia, I would treat with atypical antimicrobials. Um, and one of those studies they evaluate, right, like the worst outcomes when you're not treating atypical pneumonia. And I think it's pretty clear that we should be treating it. Atypical pneumonia, um, I believe, was previously called walking pneumonia because in the Civil War, like it was a, or whatever war, I'm not good at history that well, but there was a war, people were fighting, and people were in the trenches. <laughs> and typically you died of pneumonia, right? Like pneumonia was a death sentence, but there are these soldiers walking around and they could still like power through their pneumonia. Hence we got walking pneumonia. So there is some level of like, maybe the patient will get over it themselves. But if you have a typical or an atypical pneumonia that is defined and you have diagnosis, I would recommend treating with atypicals. I don't think at that point you would necessarily need like strep pneumo H flu pneumonia. And to the point, zithromycin does have some coverage of like strep pneumo. If you haven't isolated it, you're still to some degree potentially covering it. Same thing with doxy. I mean, doxy is relatively broad. Yeah. 